Great, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you guys uh, this morning. And for those of you who I don't know, uh, I thought maybe just to introduce myself, and also to be honest, just for a bit of a laugh, I would begin this morning just by showing you 60 seconds of photos from my life. Would that be okay? This is just a bit of fun. Is that all right? Okay, so first photograph, ladies and gentlemen, me as a baby. Now, you can see here, folks, that I was actually born with a receding hairline. (laughs) And if you look very carefully, you can see I was also born with a squint, which means that wherever you are seated in this room, at least one of my eyes is looking at you. (laughs) Next photograph, me, age seven. Oh, yes. Now, as you can see, ladies and gentlemen... I've really got a number of problems here. In fact, we could spend the whole morning going through my problems just one by one. I'm just going to take one of my many problems. Um, What's happened here is that my mum has got out the old kitchen scissors. And she's tried to cut my fringe straight. But she's gone ever so slightly uphill. Can you see that? Next photo, me in a band. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. When I was a student, I, too, was in a band. And you can see uh, Jim on one side of me. Jim has a bit of a pout. Can you see his lips pouting? Yes? That's because Jim's been in a band before. But Roddy and me, however, we haven't been in a band before. So we're just trying to look cool, you know, like you do. Uh, Next photo, me on my stag day. Just to explain, if you're not from this country, here in Britain, if you are a man and you want to get married, you first have to dress up as an ostrich jockey. (laughs) And uh, now here's a photo of my wonderful wife, uh, Julia, and we've got these four lovely daughters. So I am now 47 years into my journey through life. And probably most of us would agree that during the course of a typical 70, 80, 90 year life, there usually comes a point, a moment. Now, this moment may only last for five minutes, but at least for those five minutes, you and I ask this question. Am I alive for a reason? I mean, I can see, talk, think, feel, I can have fun, but is there any purpose to life? How come... There's something rather than nothing. How come there's a universe with me living in it? How come there's a planet Earth with me living on it? You know, I just showed you a few photos from my life. Well, you could take your phone right now and you could show me a few photos from your life. But once we've added those photos together, does it mean anything? I mean, do our lives amount to anything in the greater scheme of things? Or are we really just meaningless bags of chemicals? Is life ultimately pointless? And during those five minutes, when we're asking this big question, along comes a 33-year-old man. Now, this man is by far the most famous man who's ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth. And he looks you and me straight in the eye this morning and says, you're not an accident. You're supposed to be here. 
You are worth something. Jesus of Nazareth says there really is a loving Father God who always planned that one day you would exist. And now, this loving God has deliberately made you on purpose in the hope of having the most wonderful relationship with you. This is a relationship that's so good that it isn't just good for this life, but it goes on into the next life, into a place where you'll never be bored, a place where every day will be better than the one before. This is a place where you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. Jesus says you're that loved by God. Now that's quite a claim. In fact, it's such a bold claim that I decided it was probably worth investigating. And so what happened to me? Well, I didn't go to church. In fact, I didn't know anyone my age who went to church. But I was invited along out of the blue to a church very much like this church. And I had lots of questions. And one of my questions was, hasn't science buried God? This morning, I'd just like to go through that journey and explore this question in terms of the journey that I went on and some of the questions that I asked along the way. So this, is, uh, this book I'm holding is a geneticist Francis Collins' personal story of how he converted from atheism to Christianity. It's the story of how halfway through his academic career, he became a follower of Jesus. And after becoming a Christian, Collins was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And in April 2003, he announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the entire human genome. This is one of the most astounding scientific advances of all time. So has science buried God? Well, clearly not in the opinion of the many leading scientists like Francis Collins who believe in God. They see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. They would say that juxtaposing science and God as opposites, they'd say that's a category mistake. Now, what do they mean by a category mistake? Well, let's imagine that I decide to make a cup of tea. And then let's imagine that while the kettle is boiling, scientists Kelvin and Joule discover the precise mechanism whereby heat is turned into boiling water. So we now know how the water boiled. We have discovered the mechanism. But it would be a mistake to say that because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist. It's a mistake because you could still quite accurately say the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore, Adrian Holloway doesn't exist, that would be a category mistake. So we don't need an adversarial either-or explanation. And it seems actually that most people in Britain agree with this. A 2005 European Commission poll found that 78% of people in the UK believe in God and or the supernatural. These are the very same British adults who have more scientific knowledge than any preceding generation. So it seems that even in this modern technological age, most British people don't see science and God as enemies. 
They don't see it as an either or. Actually, most British people see science and God as a both and. And so, having heard this kind of response, I then said, okay, look, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe science hasn't buried God. But hey, come on. I mean, as we discover more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does look increasingly unlikely. Yes? Well, that is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. So let me see if I can explain what I mean. Firstly, then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe has always been there. They said the universe is eternal. Now, they used to argue in that way because at the time, the universe was thought to be locked in a static or so-called steady state. Then an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not locked in a static, steady state. Hubble saw the other galaxies are actually moving away from us and from each other. And the easiest way for us to visualize what Hubble saw is to use a balloon. Now, just imagine, if you were for a moment with me, that these stars on my seven-year-old daughter's balloon are actually galaxies. What Edwin Hubble saw was that the galaxies are moving away from us and also from each other. In fact, wherever we look in the universe, this process is taking place. If all the galaxies are moving apart, the conclusion was obvious. The universe is expanding. So cosmologists concluded that seeing as the universe is expanding, in the past, it must have been much smaller than it is today. In fact, they concluded at one time it was no bigger than this balloon. They concluded at one time the universe had a beginning. And then in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that was left behind by the beginning moment. And so today, there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time, the universe did have a beginning. Now, this was a huge blow to atheists because they could no longer argue that the universe had always been there. This is a really good example of how a scientific discovery has actually made it easier to believe in God because this beginning moment looks like Genesis 1 verse 3 where God says, let there be light and there was light. Or let me put the same thing to you another way. Imagine if I said to you, that 13.7 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. And then, one second later, there was a huge purple carrot the size of Swindon. <laughs> now, I put it to you that the sudden appearance of the huge carrot would demand some kind of explanation. You see, it's not that matter and energy exploded into an already existing space-time universe? No. Space and time themselves began to exist at this beginning moment. Space, time, matter, and energy all began to exist at the same moment. We now know 
that the universe came into existence suddenly out of nothing. And this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, this sounds reasonable. At least we don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. And as we have just seen, this is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. This is the standard model. The conclusion necessarily follows that the universe has a cause. Something or someone that exists outside of time and outside of space caused the space-time universe to come into being. Let me finish this, my first point, with a just, just a funny story. This is the amusing story of how Julia and I chose the name of our fourth child. When my wife, Julia, went into labor with our fourth child, it was all happening really fast. And so for the first time ever, we called an ambulance. And we are racing to the hospital in the back of the ambulance. And as I'm in the back of the ambulance, it occurs to me that we don't have another girl's name. If it is going to be another girl, because we have already used up all of our girls' names (laughs) on our first three daughters. And so looking for a bit of inspiration... You may be amused to know that in the back of the ambulance, I asked the ambulance lady, by the way, what's your name? And she said, Tanith. I said, pardon? She said, Tanith. I said, oh, uh, how do you spell that? She said, T-A-N-I-T-H. She said, do you know what it means? I said, "Uh, no. She said, it means... The serpent lady. (laughs) So, we called our fourth daughter, Emma. (laughs) But at no time, at no time during the birth, did any of the medical staff in the operating theatre think that Emma had just happened. None of them thought that Emma had come into existence for absolutely no reason at all. Now, why didn't they think like that? Because everyone in the world bases their life upon the law of cause and effect. The most reliable scientific principle of all time is that out of nothing, nothing comes. So to get a universe out of nothing You need a cause. And a cause that is capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence. Well, you could call that first cause God. So I looked at the origin of the universe. Next, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, we know that if we were just 5% closer to the sun, we would fry. We know that if we were 5% further away, we would freeze. There wouldn't be any life on Earth. We know that our solar system just happens to be in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone of the Milky Way, in between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms. Maybe you can see the little yellow letters. That's a rare, safe place in the Milky Way. It's also where you are. But the degree of fine-tuning that we are talking about with the origin of the universe is far more impressive than any of that. 
Way back at the beginning of the universe, there's an explosion which causes matter to fly outwards, but at a perfectly controlled speed. You see, too fast, and nothing will ever settle down, there won't ever be a universe, but too slow an expansion, and the universe just collapses back on itself. So the universe expands, but the speed of expansion turns out to be critical. If slowed down too much, the universe can never get going in the first place. Folks, if the rate of expansion, one second after the beginning moment, had been smaller by even one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And the speed of the expansion is controlled by something called the cosmological constant, and that is the energy density of empty space. Therefore, the cosmological constant can't be just any old number. No, in order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant has to be fine-tuned to a very precise number. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And it turns out it's not just the cosmological constant. Look, there are 20 of these values. The cosmological constant is the fourth up from the bottom, but there are 20 of these values, 20 numbers that have to be just so. Otherwise, no humans, no people would ever have existed. Even the tiniest variation makes all the difference. Let me give you a a funny illustration of this concept. Uh, now, for this illustration to work, folks, I'm afraid, just for a moment, you, could I just ask you all to do me a favor? Could you all, just for a moment, just, could you all just look at my face? Those of you, yeah, and that's not a pleasant sight, it's a lady in the front row laughing at the idea, um, but uh, just look at my face. Now, just for a moment, could you please just help me out, please? Could you just raise a hand if, looking at my face, you think that I have got a criminal record? Just raise your hand. Yep, hand up straight at the back, yep. Anybody else? Two, anybody else? Okay, thank you very much. Hands down, thank you. And now, could you please raise your hand if, looking at my face, you think that I have not got a criminal record? Oh, okay. Oh, wow, the majority. Okay. Well, the truth is, folks, that I have got a criminal record. Yes. Uh, The truth is that on the 14th of November, 1988, I was arrested for alarm, distress, and willful obstruction of a highway. I can see you're interested. Okay, well, I'm very happy to tell you about my crime. But what was really quite exhilarating was the way, the manner of my arrest. Because I was arrested, fleeing the scene of my crime, being chased by a police car with sirens blaring. I'd run over two roads. I jumped over a fence. I'm now running uphill through a muddy field. The police car screeches to a court. The, the coppers fly out the car. They're chasing me. They jump over the fence. I'm in a police chase. And so I'm running uphill as fast as I can. They're running after me. And I can hear the quicker of these two coppers getting closer and closer and closer. Until eventually he does this excellent rugby tackle from behind. And I go face down in the mud. I'm lying there in the mud thinking to myself, that was cool. (laughs) I mean, one minute I'm at full speed. The next, bang, face down in the mud. I think they must practice that. Anyway, so I'm lying there in the mud, and, and, and like you would, you know, when you're arrested, I'm thinking of all these cop TV shows that I've watched growing up, and as you know, what happens on telly at this point is that the policeman says, you're Nick, Sonny Jim. Do you know he actually said that? 
So I was just delighted. So I stood up and I said, look, you know, I, I, I'd say to him, look, I really just want to say thank you. I mean, it's really quite exciting. You know, the, the chase and, you know, the rugby tackling. I'm from Wimbledon. It's really quite exhilarating. Uh, so anyway, and then I'm thinking about all these cop TV shows I'm watching. What happens next on telly, as you know, is that the policeman puts your arm up your back like this. He did that as well. And so now I'm walking back to the squad car. And as I'm walking to the squad car, um, as you know, what happens on telly is that when the a person who's arrested is, they're putting them into the back of the car. One of the policemen puts his hand on your head and pushes you down as if you'd never got into the back seat of a car ever before. You know? And so he did that as well. So I'm now down in the squad car, go back to the station, I empty out my pockets and I'm arrested. Now, um, it might be that there's one or two of you here uh, this morning and you're wondering, what was the alarm? What was the distress? What was the willful obstruction of a highway? Well, uh, folks, I have to tell you that I was a student at the time. And, and what had happened was that I was going home from the, to this college where I lived at the time, and I noticed that a group of 20 of my friends had got hold of quite a large felled tree. And they were moving this tree to block a road that led to a rival, and in our opinion, inferior college. And so naturally I joined in because I thought at the time it was a good idea to block access to this college, which I felt was of no public benefit to anybody anyway. So I thought it was quite a good thing to block it off. Um, and so I joined in naturally. And, and the first clue that something was up was flashing blue lights up here in the distance or my mate Scarpa. And I remember thinking, no, 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 you don't need to run away. The police are reasonable people. We're students. This is obviously a student prank. I'm from Wimbledon. I'll be able to reason with these people. But no, when the police car got really close, I thought, no, probably this is wrong. Probably this is going to turn out to be alarm, distress, and a willful obstruction of a highway. And so because I was the last to leave the scene of my crime, I was also the easiest to catch. But if I'd run away five seconds earlier with everybody else, I would never have been arrested at all. The difference between... Me being arrested and me not being arrested was five seconds. But folks, this morning we are talking about the difference between our universe and you and me existing and nothing ever existing. The difference between those two things coming down to a far smaller variable than five seconds. You see, Roger Penrose, who helped develop our current understanding of black holes, he worked out the odds or the chances of entropy. Entropy being the, the speed at which things break down and decay in the universe. The chances of entropy being exactly the value that it is, here's the chance, one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Folks, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it, than the entire number of particles in the entire universe. But entropy is just one of the 20 factors. For us to be here to talk about it, all 20 have to be just so. So question, why is our universe so unlikely? Answer, because of the number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of the universe's existence. It turns out that gravity and electromagnetism have to just exist, but not just exist. They have to then be finely tuned to each other. The same is true of protons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and the weak nuclear force. The same is true of matter and antimatter. And so the list goes on. Any messing 
with any of the numbers that we saw on the screen a moment ago, here in this column that says value in our universe, you touch any of those dials, and there's no universe, and there's no life. Let's take gravity, for example. Let's imagine that this tape measure is so long that it actually extends from one side of the universe to the other. So, all the way over here, at one side of the universe, we have the weakest possible gravitational force. But right over here, at the opposite end of the universe, we have the strongest possible gravitational force. Okay? Now let's imagine that gravity on Earth is currently set here. Now let's imagine that I want to increase the strength of gravity on Earth by just two and a half centimeters. From here to here. Folks, scientists have discovered that this tiny increase from here to here would actually increase the strength of gravity on Earth a billion fold. It would have meant that there would never have been any life on Earth. This tiny increase on this vast scale from here to here, two and a half centimeters, that would have meant that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. This tiny increase from here to here would mean that planet Earth would never have been any bigger than this stage. But that is just gravity. All of the numbers on our table have to be perfectly related to each other. Scientists have discovered that two of these values are fine-tuned to each other to a precision of one part in ten to the power 40. Now, that's a much smaller number than the numbers we've been looking at up until now. So what's a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance look like? Well, thankfully, Dr. Hugh Ross, an astronomer from Toronto University, has a famous illustration of the 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. Here's what he says. Take a continent the size of North America and cover it with small coins and pile your coins up so high that they reach 236,000 miles into the sky. In other words, the distance from here to the moon. He says, then take another one billion continents, also the size of North America, pile your coins up on all of them, again, 236,000 miles into the sky, and then, he says, take one more additional coin and paint it red. Then hide your red coin in one of the one billion piles, all of which are the size of North America, all of which reach 236,000 miles into the sky. Yeah? Then... Find a member of the public and ask them whether they would like to participate in a scientific experiment. (laughs) If they say yes, you blindfold the member of the public and you say, okay, pick a coin, any coin, from any one of the one billion continents, all the size of North America, all with coins reaching 236,000 miles into the sky. Folks, the chance that that person will pick out the one red coin from one of those piles first time is... A 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. That's what we need for just two of these factors on our list to be perfectly related to each other. But in order for you and I to be here to talk about it, all 20 have to be perfectly related. Ladies and gentlemen, I reached a point in my life when I realized that in any other area of my life, I would never accept sheer luck 
or chance as an explanation for the facts that are in front of us. Next, the origin of organic life. Now, life is amazing. Life is exciting. And here, just by way of illustration, is the amusing story of how I first got together with Julia, who is now my wife. And this was 20 years ago. Well, folks, the background to this story is that I really liked Julia. But I was absolutely convinced that she would not like me. For one very good reason. I thought that she was too good-looking for me. Thank you for that R. (laughs) This was a fact that was confirmed to me by all of my friends. But nevertheless, there was one occasion, there's about 20 of us friends, we're all together in the same room. Actually, I was sitting next to Julia on a sofa, and I noticed that her knee was touching mine. Yeah? But at the time, I dismissed this as purely accidental knee contact. The sort of accidental knee contact that presumably can happen when a girl finds herself sitting next to some bloke who she doesn't fancy at all. So I thought, any second now... Julia will realize that her knee is touching mine, and she will withdraw her knee. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you that 10 seconds passed. (laughs) And no such knee withdrawal took place. But at the time, I thought, well, maybe the sofa is so small that she's been squashed, forced into sustained knee contact against her will. But no, I looked around, the sofa was plenty big enough. So I thought, well, maybe she's got one of those medical conditions. <laughs> you know, where you can't feel things. I mean, maybe she's had a nerve cut in her right knee. Maybe she has paralysis of the right knee. But no, Julia showed none of the telltale signs of right knee paralysis. So I decided if her knee is still touching mine in an additional 10 seconds time, I am going to take that as official confirmation that she is interested in me. 10 seconds later, her knee was still touching mine and I realized that I had received a signal. (laughs) Even though I am a bloke, I was able to work this out. And so, and here, folks, just to speed things up, I will now skip a whole year of the story. Uh, A whole year later, I was now ready to propose marriage to Julia. And so it was that one night, I hid in the bushes, planning my first burglary. My mission was to break into Julia's parents' house and steal her passport. Because my plan was to whisk her away to Paris. Because I thought, if I can up the romance level high enough and propose in Paris, then when I say, will you marry me? She might say yes in a kind of disorientated daze. Brought on by the excitement of the Eurostar. And so, in Paris, in a restaurant called La Table d'Hôte du Palais Royal, which set me back a bit, um, I got down on one knee, I said, will you marry me? And she said yes. Life is exciting. Life is amazing. And if right now we could see the sort of complexity that is encoded in every single one of our DNA sequences, we would be blown away by life. 
So if you could just play this video for me. Thank you so much. With the benefit of computer animation, we can now see what's happening inside your body right now. With the benefit of computer animation, we can enter into a cell and we can view this remarkable system at work, the way in which cells are multiplied. So after entering the heart of a cell, we can see the tightly wound strands of DNA. These are storehouses that contain the instructions needed to build every single protein in an organism. And in a process known as transcription, this molecular machine first unwinds the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions that are needed in order to assemble a specific protein molecule. Then another molecular machine copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. And when this process of transcription is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. Look, it knocks on the door. It's all very British. <laughs> Let me out. There we go. The, this is the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is then directed to a two-part molecular factory. This factory is called a ribosome. And after attaching itself there securely, this amazing process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. Remember, this is how proteins are made. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell, and then they're linked into chains that are often hundreds of units long. And it is their sequential arrangement that determines the type of protein that is being manufactured here along the bottom. Now, all of this is determined by your unique genetic DNA code, that code that was embedded in that double helical structure that we saw right back at the very beginning of our video. And when this chain is finished, it's moved from the ribosome into this barrel-shaped machine, and here it is going to be folded into the precise chain shape that is critical to its function. And just remember, folks, that as we're watching this animation on the screen, exactly this is happening on the miniature level in every single one of our bodies. After the chain shape is folded into a protein, it's released and shepherded by, look, another molecular machine. Here it comes. How cool is that? And it is taken to the precise location where it is needed. Now, that is a cell today. But even the most primitive, even the most basic living cell that scientists have ever been able to imagine, even the first ever cell still contains information, information in a code. And so the code and the means of translating it are both needed from the word go. One of those things is useless without the other. So where did the information come from in the first ever living cell? Well, Sir Francis Crick is the man who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA, the genetic code of life. He said there's literally zero probability of life coming into existence out of nothing on this planet by chance. It's been said by many people that Francis Crick understands the complexity 
of getting life started on earth better than anybody else. Francis Crick knows DNA can't just happen. But as it happens, he was an atheist. So he was asked the question, how did DNA ever come to be on planet earth? He answered by saying that DNA arrived billions of years ago in a spaceship sent to earth by aliens. Sir Francis Crick said, seeing as life could never have come into existence on this planet by chance, it must have been transported here by intelligent life from elsewhere in the galaxy by spaceship. He says in his book, Life Itself, quote, Microorganisms travelled in the head of an unmanned spaceship sent to Earth by a higher civilization which developed elsewhere billions of years ago. Now, I suggest that he hasn't solved the problem. I suggest that he simply moved the problem. Now, folks, we are out of time here. But let's try and draw some of these threads together. Nothing that I've said this morning proves that God exists. I'm sure we're all clear about that. Nothing that I've said this morning proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation, that when you look at the origin of the universe, and when you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, and when you look for the origin for biological information, in all three cases, what seems to be needed is a transcendent, intelligent first course. And you could call a transcendent, intelligent first cause God. So it's clear science hasn't buried God. God's existence is a reasonable explanation for not only the existence of the universe, but also the existence of life. Okay, in the last two minutes, what about Charles Darwin's famous theory of evolution? Well, biological evolution begins with the entire universe already in existence. Evolution has nothing to say about how the universe started or even about how life began. So let's all be clear about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory is. Biological evolution does not even start until the universe has already been in existence for 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Well, why did it begin to exist? Evolution doesn't even address those questions. Biological evolution begins after you have already got your universe and you've already got a planet Earth. And biological evolution only begins after you already have a single-celled organism living on the surface of this planet in the ideal conditions. So I think it's obvious that evolution could be true and God still exists. Yes? It would be a mistake to argue, because evolution has happened, God does not exist. That is the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. That is the category mistake that we started with. So in the last 60 seconds, let me look briefly at three different Christian responses to evolution. Firstly, young earth creationism. This is the view that the earth is young. It's only about 20 to 30,000 years old, and it was created in six 24-hour days. This view says that common descent or evolution between species has not happened. And if you want to find out more about this view, you could have a look at uh, answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis. Next view, old earth creationism. This view accepts the scientific consensus today that the universe is 13.7 billion years old 
and that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. But this view, like the first one, also says that evolution between species or common descent has not taken place. If you want to find out more about this view, I recommend you look at reasons to believe or reasons.org. A third view is called theistic evolution. This view is different from the first two in that it says that common descent, evolution between species, has taken place. They would argue that God has uh, supervised, guided, or directed the process either to a greater extent or to a lesser extent. If you want to find out more about that view, you could look at biologos. Now, folks, all three of these views on the screen here are taken by sincere Christians who want to treat the Bible seriously. Obviously, they do interpret the early chapters of the book of Genesis differently. In our church, you will find all three of these views represented, and in fact, a number of others as well. Okay, at this point, you may be asking, Adrian, could you just cut to the quick, could you just get to the bottom line? Maybe you're saying, look, Adrian, I don't normally go to church. This is my first time ever in this building. Uh, help me out. I was brought up to believe in evolution. My parents believe in evolution. At school, I was taught evolution. Everything that I see on television assumes evolution. Can I follow Jesus Christ? Answer, yes. So I don't have to commit intellectual suicide? Answer, no. Hey, I was brought up like you. I was brought up to believe in evolution. My parents believe in evolution. At school, everything I was taught assumes evolution. Everything on television assumes evolution. But I have come to follow Jesus Christ, and I did not have to commit intellectual suicide and throw my brain out of the window to do so. Very lastly, we might wonder if God really has gone to all this trouble to create the universe and then fine-tune the universe and then to create life, you'd almost expect that this God would want to communicate to his creatures Folks, all the Bible is saying is that that is what was happening through Jesus of Nazareth. And finding out that there really is a loving God and getting to know him through trusting Jesus Christ. Folks, that has been the most thrilling discovery of my life. It's been great being with you. God bless you and thanks for your attention. Thanks very much.